All right. What the heck am I supposed to be talking about today? All right, that's right, David. We are in this series, David, right now. Today, uh, we're actually heading into part three of this series. Uh, if for some reason you've missed either one of the first two parts uh, of this series, and by the way, I'd really, really encourage you, if, if you are missing uh, any parts of the series, like remind yourself, again, we have church online. You're obviously watching this right now. If you find yourself out of town, you're at home sick with a kid, make sure you're making church online a part of your week. But if you did miss either one of the first two parts of the series, I'd really encourage you to go over to grumlaw.com slash messages and catch yourself up there. Or as always, you can find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcast. But the reason that we're doing this series on the life of David uh, is because, and by the way, this is one of the things that I love most about this church. Uh, A lot of you who are watching right now, you didn't grow up going to church. This whole Jesus, Bible, church thing, it's a relatively new experience for you. And our hope and our prayer is that as you grow in your faith, you're inevitably going to want to spend more time with Jesus, actually building what could be called a relationship with him. And one of the primary ways that that relationship is built is by actually picking up the Bible and reading that thing for yourself. You see, the Bible isn't simply information. It's the only book that leads to transformation. It is God's word. And that's not just some cute phrase that we use around the church. It's literally God's word. It is God actively speaking to us, dissecting us, exposing us, drawing us closer to him through his word. And as you read the Bible, and by the way, if you're watching right now and you're like, I don't even have a copy of the Bible, you can make this really easy on yourself and just download the YouVersion Bible app. This is 100% free. There's all these incredible plans and devotionals uh, to help you get started and help make the Bible a part of your daily routine. But as you read the Bible, you'll notice that there are certain themes, certain places, and even certain people who are spoken of quite frequently. And if you didn't grow up going to church, and that's, again, a lot of you who are sitting and watching right now, uh, you're going to have no context or no concept of who the text is referring to. And one of the people that's mentioned a lot, like 971 times to be exact, throughout the pages of this book we call the Bible, is this guy named David, who we are exploring throughout the course of the series. Now, just in case you missed those first two weeks, David, he was Israel's second king, but undeniably, as we've seen and continue to unpack throughout this series, he was Israel's greatest king. The, the Old Testament, which is the first half of the Bible, in large part, it documents the history of God's chosen people, the Israelites, the ancient Israelite people. And, and this is where we're able to peer in and learn about the life of King David. Again, this is a real person, not just some Bible character, but a real historical figure. Now, now as we head into part three, I have a quick question for all of you. And even if you're laying in bed or sitting on your couch, I want a little participation. Who of you is familiar with this thing we call the golden rule? Any of you? Quick show of hands. Right? We're all familiar with this. We learn about this in school. Your parents maybe taught to you. A lot of you, you probably don't know, this actually has its roots in the Old Testament. But the golden rule goes something like this, right? Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Now, a point that I think we can all agree on is the golden rule is great. Nobody disagrees with the golden rule. And it sounds great until, until you're mistreated by someone, right? Because as soon as we're mistreated, and I know I can't be the only one who thinks this way, we prefer to kind of modify, tweak the golden rule. Rather than saying, do unto others as you would have others do unto you, we we, kind of change it. And we say, do unto others as others have done unto you. Because the moment that someone mistreats you, or the moment that someone mistreats someone that you care about, 
it, it actually seems right. I mean, it feels justified to do to that person whatever it is that they just did to you or the person you care about. Uh, back when I was in the second grade, I was walking home from school. We were walkers because the school uh, was right around the corner from the house that I grew up in. And I was walking with a couple of my friends and my older brother, Trevor, who was in the fifth grade, three years older than me, he was walking about 50 yards behind me. And there was another older kid who was also in the fifth grade, kind of a bully, who thought it would be a good idea, uh, maybe to kind of demonstrate how powerful he was, to come up from behind me and shove me to the ground. And so he comes, he does that, he shoves me to the ground, and I'm trying to plaque tough and not cry and make sure I'm tough around my friends. Well, again, he has no idea that my brother is closely watching from 50 yards behind. And here comes my valiant brother to the rescue. He swoops right in and he just doesn't shove him. He cocks back and punches this kid right in the face, knocks him to the ground. And on this kid goes running, crying on his way to his house. And me and my brother kind of look at each other like, well, that was the sweetest thing that's ever happened in our lives. And we go home, we're kind of on this high, and about an hour after this whole incident, this car that we don't recognize pulls into our driveway. And out of the passenger side comes the kid that my brother had just an hour earlier punched in the face, along with his mother getting out of the driver's side. And now they are marching their way right up to our front door. And me and Trevor are looking at each other like, oh no, we're about to be in trouble. Mom and dad don't know about what happened. Now they're about to know what happened. This lady is going to be mad that Trevor just punched her son. Well, much to our surprise, she rings the doorbell and she kind of elbows her son and he apologizes to me for pushing me down. No even comment about my brother punching him in the face and they walk away. And so now my dad's kind of sitting there like, well, what happened after school today? And so we're very carefully choosing our words, recounting the story to my dad, and then just kind of bracing for the moment that we're grounded, that we're going to be in trouble. And kind of much to our surprise, I didn't get in trouble. Trevor didn't get in trouble. In fact, and my dad will probably try to deny this, he was proud. Because after all, his oldest son was just living out the golden rule. But here's the thing, there's actually another kind of tweak to the golden rule that every single one of us have been made, but exactly zero of us would actually admit to this. How about those occasions where somebody mistreats you and you don't have the opportunity to get back at the individual who hurt or mistreated you? So, and, and this is so strange, you end up mistreating someone who had nothing to do with that situation. You end up taking it out on them. And so often we end up taking it out on people that we care and love about the most. And they're like so confused, right? I mean, they're looking at you like, what in the heck did I do? Well, nothing, but someone else hurt me. So now I'm gonna hurt you. It's revenge just wildly misdirected. It's the golden rule, just a new form of the golden rule. It's do unto others as someone else has done unto you. We see this manifest itself in abusive marriages, but bosses who treat their employees terribly, parents who are so incredibly harsh with their kids. Every single one of us have seen this play out, but it's something so difficult to see in the mirror, to see in ourselves. But, but, but the problem with all of this, with revenge and payback and getting even, see, see the problem with getting even is that it makes you even with someone you don't even like. <laughs> it, it makes you even like the person that just mistreated you. Why would you want to get even with someone that you think you're better than? 
Think about it. You're acting like the person you don't like. You are going down and lowering yourself to that level. And this right here brings us to where we're going to be exploring today in the life of David during his fugitive years as he's trying to avoid both the Philistines as well as Saul, Israel's first king. The Philistines, they want him dead because he just killed their war hero, Goliath. And Saul, they want David dead and him and his men want him dead because Saul, Israel's first king, is intimidated by the fact that now David is kind of like the most popular person in all of the land, the clear heir apparent to the throne of Israel, and so he's trying to kill him. So both sides coming after David. He's a fugitive. He's an outlaw on the run along with a group of his friends. And there's where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 25. It says, There was a wealthy man from Maon who owned property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep shearing time. This man's name was Nabal, and his wife Abigail was a sensible and beautiful woman, as you will soon see. But Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, was crude and mean in all of his dealings. In other words, he was an old grump. Nobody liked Nabal. In fact, his very name means fool. And as you will see here in just a minute, he certainly lives up to that title. When David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent 10 of his young men to Carmel with this message for Nabal. Peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything you own. I am told that it is sheep shearing time. While your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, we never harmed them, and nothing was ever stolen from them. David is saying to Nabal through his messengers, hey, if you have a prophet, part of the reason that you actually have a prophet is due to the protection of my men. As your shepherds were wandering around in the wilderness, and by the way, this is something I'm very familiar with because I used to be a shepherd, we never took advantage of them. We never stole anything from them. And in fact, we actually went out of our way to protect them from those who might have sought to do them harm. And so he continues, he says, ask your own men and they'll tell you that this is true. So would you be kind to us since we have come at a time of celebration. He's going, will you live out the golden rule? Will you be kind to us as we have been kind to you? Please share any provisions you might have on hand with us and with your friend, David. We've been good to your men. You ought to be good to us. I mean, come on, Nabal. Everybody knows the golden rule. Live this out. David's young men gave this message to Nabal in David's name, and they waited for a reply. Who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to the young men. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? See, see, everybody knew who David was at this point. Everybody also knew that David was on the lamb running away from Saul. This, this guy Nabal even knows that, that David is the son of Jesse. He says there are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. And this is a shot at David. He's going, little David is running away from Saul. Nabal's going, who does this guy think he is? I never asked for any favors or or protection from David or his men. I don't owe David a thing. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to a band of outlaws? Ooh, who come from who knows where? Ooh. So David's young men returned and told him what Nabal had said. And right here, if this were a movie, the soundtrack would shift to something more ominous and we'd all be thinking, oh, snap, it's about to go down. 
This is that scene in Taken where the kidnapper says to Liam Neeson, good luck. And you think, oh boy, man, you should not have said that. Get your swords, was David's reply as he strapped on his own. Then 400 men started off with David. It's about to go down. This movie's about to go from PG to R in a hurry. Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail, the wife of Nabal, and told her, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed insult at them. He, He acted exactly as Nabal typically acts. These men have been very good to us, and we never suffered any harm from them. Nothing was stolen from us the whole time they were with us. In fact, day and night, they were like a wall of protection to us and the sheep. This servant runs to Nabal's wife, Abigail, and is like, this is exactly what happened. What they said is absolutely true. And your husband, per usual, living up to his reputation, living up to his name, he responded like a fool. So they're looking at Abigail going, you need to know this and figure out what to do because we are in trouble. There's going to be trouble for our master and his whole family, including you, including me, including all the servants. He's so ill-tempered that no one, can even talk to him. Abigail is all too familiar with her husband's tendencies, with his anger, with his arrogance, with his foolishness. And because now of the imminent danger that they would all soon be facing, Abigail wasted no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins full of wine, five sheep that had been slaughtered, nearly a bushel of roasted grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, and 200 fig cakes. She packed them on donkeys and said to her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you shortly. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal what she was doing. (laughs) Smart woman. As she was riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, she saw David and his men coming toward her. So here she is headed to intercept David and his men, and she really could not have afforded to wait much longer. Because as she is riding, looking for David, hoping to intercept him, David and his men, she sees them coming down this ravine. They're making their way down, and they're all armored up. They're heading down into the very valley where the sheep shearing is going on, and they are ready to enact vengeance. Now this next part is so good. It's so rich, and chances are, if if you've ever even read this story for yourself, you probably just breezed right past this stuff without even giving it a second thought, but but don't miss this. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. This is not normal. In, In fact, this would have been a very bizarre thing for Abigail to do. She, she is the wife of a very wealthy man. And you have to keep in point that, yet da- yes, David was well-known, but David was still just David. He's not a king. And, and because she bows low before him, it, it totally catches David off guard. She starts, this is so important, she starts treating David like the man, like the king that, that she hopes David will be. And women, kind of quick word of advice, this works on us men even when we know exactly what you are doing. It's like, honey, I bet you could hang all those pictures without even breaking a sweat. It's like, I see what you're doing here, but dang right I can. In fact, why don't you watch me do it and enjoy the view. Abigail begins to speak to David's potential. She begins to speak to his future 
rather than how David is living in the moment. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, which she didn't have to do, which she wasn't to blame. I accept all blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Nobody is more familiar with this than me. Please don't pay any attention to him. He is a fool just as his name suggests. I'm guessing their marriage wasn't that healthy. But I never even saw the young men you sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord himself lives and you yourself live, and don't miss this port, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. You see what she's doing here? She's almost speaking it, willing the desired outcome into existence. Since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands. That hadn't occurred yet. She's assuming because of her plea that David's going to pull back. That David is going to show mercy. And then she goes on to give David credit for being a greater man than he actually is at this point. This is one smart woman. He says, please for, she says, please forgive me if I've offended you in any way. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty, for you are fighting the Lord's battles, and you have not done wrong throughout your entire life. She's speaking to David's future. She knows, along with everybody else, that God is up to something great with the life of David. Everybody has heard the tale of the young 15-year-old boy who took down the giant. The handwriting for David's future is sitting right there. Even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. But the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. See, everybody knows at this point that Saul is hunting down David. And she begins to draw on this imagery that, that, that God is holding David so closely that, that he has such a special purpose for his life. God has huge things planned for David. And, and when it comes to his enemies, she's taking him back to that moment when he defeated Goliath. That, that's why she specifically references the stones shot from a sling. She's going, don't you remember when you took a single stone shot from one sling and took down the giant you don't need to be taking matters into your own hands, David, because the Lord Almighty goes before you. And then, in this next section, here we find the point of the message today. She asked David to consider this question, and it is such a brilliant question. She says, what story, David, do you want to tell when this is just another story you tell? David, when you're looking back in your life, and it's going to be a great life, everybody knows this, and, and this is just another story. What story do you want to tell about this particular moment in time? When the Lord has done all he promised, and he's made you leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. She's going, David, everybody knows that God has destined you for greatness. 
And if you do what you're about to do, you will regret this. You're trying to take matters into your own hands rather than allowing God to fight your battles. This will just be a story of needless, unabashed vengeance when you didn't control your emotions and you took matters into your own hands where you thought you were at the top of the food chain. You'll be so embarrassed and ashamed of this story if you carry out what you're about to carry out. And David, he considered the words of Abigail. And his temperature went down. And he looked at Abigail and he said, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. Abigail, thank God for your wisdom. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. Rather than allowing his emotions to continue to rule, he commends Abigail on her wisdom and her courageous actions. Then David accepted her present and told her, return home in peace. I have heard what you said. We will not, we will not kill your husband. Now, if if this is how the story ended, it'd still be really great. But (laughs) it actually gets even better. It's still not over. David goes on his way. He's not going to destroy the household of Nabal. And Abigail returns home, planning on that evening that she's going to reveal what happened with David to Nabal. But when she gets home, he's been partying with his friends. He's like drunk as a skunk. He is completely hammered. And so she decides to wait until the next morning to give this news to Nabal. And when she tells Nabal what happened, he's so shocked and so caught off guard that he has a stroke. He finds himself completely paralyzed in a bed for 10 days, and eventually he dies. This situation was never outside of God's control. Not even for a second. This situation with COVID has never been out of God's control. Not even for a second. That crisis that you're experiencing in your life right now has never been outside of God's control. Not even for a second. David, before Abigail's intervention, had forgotten the proper order of things. And for a brief moment, he had placed himself above God. (laughs) And then look what happens next. It's like a fairy tale. It says, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, praise the Lord who has avenged the insult I received from Nabal and has kept me from doing it myself. Why was I trying to take into my own hands that which God clearly had ordained, that which God clearly had under his control? Nabal has received the punishment for his sin. Then David sent messengers to Abigail and asked her to become his wife. And she said yes, and they lived happily ever after the end. I made this part up, but this part is real. I I bet some of you had no idea how rich the stories of the Bible can be. Now, as I wrap this thing up, I want to summarize the responses that we see in this story. First off, we have Nabal, right? Evil for good. Nabal came along and he repaid evil for good. And that is so maniacal. And whether you're a Christian or not, nobody wants to be a Nabal. Nobody wants to be a fool who goes along repaying evil for good. But then along comes David and he repays evil for evil. And that is so predictable. That is what our society, that is what our world tells us to do. Repay evil for evil and good for good. Live out the golden rule. But then comes Abigail. 
And, and she does something, well, that's so remarkable. She repays good for evil. And in this way, Abigail was so ahead of her time by about a thousand years, and she couldn't have possibly known what she was foreshadowing. See, in the old covenant, the old law, the old Israelite law, it was all about an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, and evil for evil, and good for good. It was living out the golden rule. It was what David was about to do. It was what every young man and every young woman was taught to do, the golden rule. But about a thousand years later, here comes Jesus, God in the flesh. And and he introduces an entirely new covenant. And, And he flips the old covenant completely upside down. We have these very words preserved for us from Jesus in the book of Matthew. Jesus says this, he says, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. To which the audience would have been going, yeah, we know this. Good for good, evil for evil, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Come on, everybody knows this, like so familiar, Jesus, why are you bringing this up? He says, but I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And the audience go, well, <laughs> is, is that even possible? And in that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Well, Jesus, this, this is so counterintuitive. I mean, I, I don't think that's, I mean, does that even come natural to any of us? And Jesus is going, no. Well, well, Jesus, why would we try to live this way if it's so counterculture, if it's so counterintuitive, there's really been no precedent for this. I mean, why would we try to live this way? And Jesus smirks and he says, you'll see. And shortly thereafter, Jesus showed us why this is why we ought to live because it's precisely what he did for every one of us. It's what he did for you. When he gave himself on a cross to cover your rear end. See, when we sin, we are sinners. And as sinners, we become enemies of God. And Jesus came down and died for us, not once we got our act together, but while we were still sinning, while we were still enemies of God. So as I wrap this up, I have three questions for all of us to consider. Two of these questions are for everybody, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. And then I have one question just for the Jesus followers who are watching right now. First question, do do I really want to be even with someone I don't even like? Let me help you arrive at the answer. It's no. Because to get even with someone you don't like is to be like someone you don't like. It's coming down to their level. That is Nabal living. That is foolish living. Don't live like a fool. Even is easy. Wouldn't it be better, instead of being even, to be ahead? And I'm telling you, you pull ahead by refusing to get even. So do I really want to be even with someone I don't even like? Question number two, what story do I want to tell? What story do you want to tell? And this is honestly such a great question, whether you identify as a Christian or not. Because every event in our lives just becomes a part of the story we tell. 
And, and think about it. Do you really want your story to be, I got even and I paid them back and I really stuck it to them? Of course not. Nobody, unless you're in middle school, looks back on those stories favorably. Those stories are embarrassing. It's foolishness. It's a tale of how you were unable to control your emotions. It's a tale of how you came down to their level. It's a tale of your lack of maturity. It's a tale of me coming down to the level of people I don't even like. And then number three, and this is a question really just for the Jesus followers, and by the way, that this isn't an optional. This is actually central. This is foundational to what it means to follow Jesus. What would it look like for me to return good for evil? To bless those who hurt, to bless those who offend you. Maybe an ex, a friend, your dad, your mom, your neighbor, your boss. And hear me really clear on this. Not just do nothing, that's mercy, but do something that's grace and it's exactly what Jesus, what God did for you. And here's church, why I think this is so important. Again, I'm talking to the Jesus followers watching right now. Why in so many ways, this should be the defining mark of those who follow Jesus. This is our greatest opportunity to be like our father in heaven. This is how our story intersects with the greatest story ever told. God returning good for evil. God's son for your sin. Our rebellion for his saving grace. This is what sets Jesus' followers apart. And as a bonus, it's what sets you free. Because until you return good for evil... The, the, the person that has mistreated you controls you. So, so don't write a maniacal story. Don't even settle for a predictable story. Do for others precisely what they don't deserve for you to do, just like your Father in heaven did for you. <laughs>